You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right, well, good morning. How are we doing? Yeah, I mean, it's just a good morning. It's a very good morning. If you're a guest with us or if you have not been here in a while, glad that you are with us. And for those of you tuning in online, uh, thanks for tuning in. Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. We are continuing in our journey where we left off last week in our verse-by-verse series that we've titled The Culture War. Last week, we began the second chapter of Titus talking about how there is a definitively right way to live. There are prescribed standards by which we are to live that are dictated to us from the Word of God that every Christian is to live by, and that those categories, or that there are categories that determine which standards that we are to give ourselves to. The four categories are, uh, if you remember, older men, older women. You're like, why are you reminding of this, uh, Pastor Derek? I thought we were past this. Uh, Older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. And every single one of us fall into one of those categories. And, And what we also learned, what we talked about throughout our time, was that whenever we fail to live out those standards, and certainly we will all fail at some level, but when we really fail, when we almost simply disregard those standards, we essentially disqualify ourselves from weighing in on the culture around us. In other words, we have no real business arguing for a Christian definition of things like family and marriage when our own practice of family and marriage are indistinguishable from the world's. It's, very, uh, it's a very bad look. It's bad optics for Christians to uh, sort of poke at the way the world is doing things when we ourselves are doing them the same exact way. We look like hypocrites because, well, we are hypocrites. And so if we're going to have a voice in the public square with regard to what should be normative, that's how we define the culture war, is opposing groups arguing over what uh, moral values, what practices should be considered normal. If we're going to have a voice in the public square, if we're going to engage in the culture war, we better be concerned with living above reproach in the things that we are critical of. Now today, uh, we find ourselves in um, another household relationship but one that does not exist in our current culture and time. It's a kind of relationship that's deeply problematic, it's unjust, it's ultimately just flat-out uncomfortable to talk about, but it's a topic that we need to talk about because it's in the text. We're faced with the daunting task of dealing with slavery. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is our text this morning. Read with me. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, you'll notice probably most of your Bible translations use the term bondservant uh, or servant. Uh, that is, in my estimation, the modern translators attempt to uh, distinguish this terminology from uh, something that we think of. We'll talk about that here in a moment with regard to the term slave, but it really is better understood as slave. That's the kind of relationship that is being discussed here. Now, some of you may be wondering, why do we even need to talk about this? We don't practice this kind of slavery anymore in our culture. And while that is true, we don't practice this kind of slavery, praise God for that. 
It's still a helpful passage for a couple of reasons, at least two reasons. One, we believe that all Scripture is profitable. We stand to benefit from every single line of Scripture. Regardless of how relevant we may feel a passage of Scripture is to our current setting, all Scripture, we believe, is theonoustos, God-breathed, breathed out by the living and breathing God, and profitable, therefore, for everyone, for all things in our life. We believe in something called the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is sufficient, that it is not lacking in any way, shape, or form to address the things that we uh, may face or think about in our world during any time. So it's a passage that we need to explore uh, because it was a practice that was prevalent during Paul's time. It needed to be addressed during Paul's time. There was slavery during Paul's time. And, and, and while we see Paul occasionally make statements with regard to slavery that seem disparaging, his goal wasn't to challenge the institution of slavery, but to see every institution on earth touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's contention was that if household slaves become Christians, they have an opportunity to demonstrate their faith in a real and powerful manner by living counterculturally from other slaves in their community and thus are set apart as Christ followers. So in the same way that older men, older women, younger women, younger men have prescribed standards, in Paul's mind, so did slaves. By living out those standards, they were able to silence those in opposition to them because they were living above reproach. Now, we're going to have a, a, a discussion over slavery, and, and while it may not fit our time, it is certainly profitable because, again, all Scripture is, impro- uh, is profitable. But with that being said, I think we can agree, hopefully, that slavery is unjust, correct? Yes, it is an injustice in the world. And so secondly, while we may not face this kind of injustice today, we still face various other kinds of injustice and we need to know how to biblically address it when it happens. We need to understand, in other words, the biblical approach to engaging in the issue of social injustice. Uh, While we agree that uh, ancient slavery was an unjust practice, the New Testament deals with it differently than perhaps how we might feel like it should deal with it. So we stand to learn a great deal for how we might deal with future injustice in the world around us that we're likely to encounter. If we're going to make an impact around us, specifically by addressing social injustice as it arises, we need to know how to address it biblically, and this passage is helpful on how to do that properly. Now, before we can even work through this, we have to acknowledge that when we read a letter like this, we're standing in 2022 in the West, in America, looking back across a vast landscape of time and cultural and linguistic differences, and those differences play a profound role in how we understand the culture that we're reading about and the terminology that's used. In other words, we have to understand the differences if we're going to rightly interpret a passage like this. So before we jump in, before we do anything, let's discuss the cultural differences, because this is going to play a big impact on how you hear me say the word slave and slavery, because I guarantee you right now, already five, six minutes in, you've heard that word and you have an image in your mind that is not the image that Paul had in his mind. So we got to get on the same page with Scripture. Here's a few of the differences. Number one, Roman slavery was a different practice from slavery in the United States. It's just very different. You need to understand that. Uh, The very term slavery is an extremely loaded term in our modern context, and rightfully so. 
When you hear it, you think of what we would call chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is a prominent practice of slavery in the United States and in England. It was a brand of slavery that viewed specifically African people as less than human that could be bought and sold as property. This brand of slavery was unimaginably evil. It was void of anything good. It is irredeemable, and it should be expressly condemned. Amen. Okay. Uh, there's actually a great story about, uh, from this, this time, uh, time when chattel slavery was prominent about a man named John Newton. Uh, he was a slave trader from England, uh, grew up in the slave trade, had several ships that he captained, uh, was, was uh, a, a very storied individual, uh, eventually had some things happen to him where he ended up staying in Africa for a while, living amongst the people that he was guilty of trading, and uh, through that and a few other events, actually came to faith. And uh, some years later in his life, wrote an incredibly important historical document called Thoughts Upon a Slave Trade. And I love this. He wrote, he said, I hope it will always be, this is his past as a slave trader, he says, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me, that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. I love that. That is the sound of repentance. That is the sound of repentance. The gospel so radically transformed him that he not only walked away from what was a very lucrative family business, but actually became an abolitionist, one of the leading abolitionists against the practice of slavery in England for the rest of his life. His heart shuddered at what he had done. Interestingly enough, the Lord also called him into ministry. Uh, He wrote over 280 hymns, one of which we just sang at the very end there, Amazing Grace. That was John Newton. Those are the kinds of stories that we think of when we hear the term slavery. We think of chattel slavery, we think of colonialism, we think of John Newton, we think of the Civil War, we think of racism, and we have to understand that when Paul uses this term, that is not the kind of slavery that he has in mind. Roman slavery was not based on race. Uh, It was certainly not a good practice, but it was radically different from our own history uh, and, and certainly more forgiving in most cases. Case in point, one major difference between the United States and Rome, number two, Roman slavery was sometimes chosen by the individual. This may shock you. Uh, it was sometimes it was chosen. Rome was a conquering empire, so sometimes they were the, the slaves were forced to be slaves. Right? Rome conquered a lot of countries. Uh, they would imprison anyone who were not loyal to Caesar. They did sometimes uh, force them into indentured servitude. But often in Paul's time, people would choose to enslave themselves under a more uh, wealthier individual. In Paul's day, many people chose the occupation that we would call a day laborer, a day laborer. Uh, These were free men who worked manual labor every day, and they were paid on a day-to-day basis. Their typical wage was one denarii at the end of the day, and, and that was just enough to provide very minimally for living. In fact, Jesus drew on this very uh, normative practice in his culture in Matthew chapter 20 when he told the parable of the day labor. Do you remember that? Remember, some came to work in the morning, and some came to work midday, and some came to work in the evening, and at the end of the day, the master came out, and he paid all of the laborers the same amount. And the ones that were there in the morning were like, what the heck? We've been here all day. This is unfair. He's drawing on, because that would have been unfair during that time, he's drawing on a normative practice and culture to illustrate a deeper spiritual point. This is something that Jesus often did in his teaching. It's a very common practice, but there was a major problem with being a day laborer. You were paid by the day for your work, and the work wasn't always guaranteed. 
And so if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. And if you didn't get paid, you couldn't provide for your family, you couldn't eat, you couldn't live. There was no social support system in Rome. There was no welfare. There were no stimulus checks, right? (laughs) Papa Caesar wasn't handing out stimulus checks every now and again. This was a, a serious deal. So what would happen is it was not uncommon for people to voluntarily enslave themselves for a set amount of time under a wealthier family to guarantee that they could provide for themselves and for their own families. Often, slavery, hear this, this is, I mean, this is just the way the world was, was a better prospect and had better benefits than a free day laborer had. Now, that may rub some of you the wrong way. In America, we're taught that autonomy and freedom are like the most important values in the entire world, and Rome did not value those same things. So our cultural context understands this plays a big role in how we read the Scripture. When you open the Bible, every time you you open your Bible and you read a passage of Scripture, you are reading it through the lens of a Western American and postmodern or at least modern uh, viewpoint. How we make sense of the world around us is affected by our own experiences. And so the work of interpreting Scripture in part means going back into history and understanding how they would have thought about things, how they would have done things, how the world worked, what were the laws like, how did they use this terminology. America was quite different than Rome, which leads me to cultural difference number three. Roman slavery existed within an empire, not a democratic republic. So understand that the construct of slavery existed in a sovereign land built entirely differently, politically speaking, than the United States. The Roman Empire ruled over many nations taken by force. They were led by a single emperor, and that emperor becomes emperor by birthright, not by vote. People didn't have the opportunity to vote representatives into office. In other words, we're dealing with a very different political climate. There was no we the people in Paul's time, right? You just did what Rome told you to do or you died. It was kind of that. It was very simple. So understand, the way that the New Testament and Paul deals with slavery is obviously different than how we feel like it should be dealt with. Because Paul and the, and the apostles and the early church didn't have the same kind of social power that we have today. He lived in a different time, in a different governmental structure. He had an entirely different worldview than we do. So we can't be, we can't be frustrated with Paul, in other words, for not doing more. One thing I hear people say from time to time is, well, why didn't Paul do something about this? You know, why didn't he start a revolution? Why didn't he overthrow slavery? And and the reason for that is because he didn't have the social power that we have, number one. He he didn't have the tools to do that with. And number two, beyond that, his mission was much bigger. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But can you see the differences just right off the top of why knowing these differences might be important for us if we're going to rightly interpret what Paul is saying with regard to household slaves. That if we don't recognize the differences culturally speaking, we end up interpreting this incorrectly. Now with that said, we may not face slavery in our time in this same way, but we certainly do face a number of other social injustices. And we need to know, as I mentioned a moment ago, how to respond to them. You could probably name any number of social injustices in America today. And so we can learn how we are to respond, how we're to think about, how we're to engage in these issues in the world from this passage. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time this morning is not simply talk about Roman slavery, but I want us to focus more generally on how Christians in the culture war should engage in any kind of social injustice. And and what I want to say up front to you as your pastor, 
is that anytime we deal with a topic like this, great care and sensitivity is required of us. It is required of us. This is not a flippant discussion. Whatever your thoughts are on injustice, I realize that is a divided topic. Be reminded that real human beings created in God's image struggle differently depending on a variety of factors. Whenever we talk about injustice, remember that our experience or your experience more accurately is not a one-size-fits-all experience. That just because you don't suffer in some form does not mean that that kind of suffering is illegitimate or doesn't exist. The body of Christ is diverse, amen? Which means then that our experiences in the world are diverse as well, and by uh, connection, our suffering is also diverse. The way we engage in and experience things in the world looks differently from person to person. So we need to exercise care and compassion when we deal with a topic like this. Here's the first thing, just to sort of set the tone. First, we must recognize that social evil is not new. Whenever you begin thinking about social injustice in the world, it is important that we recognize up front social evil is not new. It's important because it prevents us from rushing into a kind of extremism. So sometimes uh, it's easy for us to fall prey for this sort of exceptionalist mindset that somehow we're the most unique part of human history. Like, you'll hear people like, the world has never been this bad, right? The end is coming. Jesus is near because it, the signs are here. It, is, it has never been this bad. And that's just simply not true. It's just simply, the world is rough, to be sure, okay? But if you're skeptical about this, let me, let's just talk about the facts for a minute, okay? Think for a moment about the overt sexuality in our culture. Can we agree, mostly, that that's happening, that it's getting worse? You're, like, afraid to raise your hand. I get it. It's fine. So there is a, there is a sort of programming, if you will, that is taking place uh, in our media, particularly in our children's programming. Disney. Let me just say up front, I love Disney. I've always loved Disney. I think they're some of the best at storytelling uh, and advancing excellence, and we have a lot to learn from that in the church. We think that just because we're talking about Jesus, we can do things sort of, you know, halfway, and it's going to be fine because the value is really in the content. That is an excuse for lazy creativity. The church should be on the cutting edge of creativity and story. We have the best story in the world. We have the greatest story in the world. We should be telling that story with excellence. We have a lot to learn from companies like this, but let me just tell you, it, it is happening in, like, Disney's come on record and said it. This is what their goal is, and so it warrants a discernment and a conversation because sexual programming is happening in our culture. With all of that in mind, though, hear me, Rome during Paul's time, far worse. Sexual immorality was off the charts in Paul's time. Child sexual abuse in Rome was not even seen as abuse. This was not only culturally accepted, it was celebrated. This is the world that Paul lived in. So we think that it's bad with regard to sexuality in our culture. We're not even hitting the, ice, the tip of the iceberg with regard to Rome, with what Paul is experiencing when he's writing to Titus. What about violence? What about violence? I remember I was like, uh, gosh, maybe, I don't remember the year, seven or eight years old. I remember they called it Mortal Monday. It was the Monday that Mortal Kombat hit the, the video game shelves. And I remember it was on the, the, I vividly remember the news talking about, like, a video game with blood. <laughs> like, this was newsworthy. And now it's like, if it doesn't have blood, it's not, it's not worth playing, right? 
So there's been a progression that's taken place with regard to violence. Uh, movies, far more violent than they were, and our special effects, far more realistic than they were 20, 25 years ago, 30 years ago. Violence is escalating in our country. But in Rome, you could literally pay money to go down the street and watch actual real people be killed in the Colosseum. If you lived in provinces outside of Rome that were recently conquered, you were likely on your way to work stepping over dead bodies who stood in the way of Caesar. This is one of the reasons historians think that Rome was, uh, the Colosseum was sort of a, a necessary sort of thing that happened in their culture because they were so, they'd been at war for like 500 years. Death and violence was, was a part of their DNA. And so the Colosseum actually in their context made a lot of sense. All that to say, this is not the worst part of human history. That is an exceptionalist mindset that is extremely dishonest about human history. The reality is there has always been evil and immorality in the world. Christians have always faced it. This is not new. Maybe it looks different from time to time, but it has always been here. It will never go away until Jesus comes back because, get this, evil and injustice all are rooted in the same basic problem, which is sin. Absolutely, sin. It may look different from time to time, but it has always been here. It will never go away until Jesus comes back, ever. It's what we live with. And this disease of sin causes men to create evil social systems for the purpose of exploiting them, oppressing them, and at times throughout history, enslaving them for their own sinful means to an end. This has been true, hear me, since Genesis chapter 3. It will be true until roughly Revelation chapter 20. This is an important concept for us to grasp because if we really accept this, it prevents us from rushing into extremism as we try and address the injustice around us. Christians have always lived with evil. You are not going, hear me, not going to figure out peace on earth. Only Jesus is going to do that. No amount of activism can do that. No amount of campaigning can do that. The Supreme Court can't do that. The president can't do that. Laws and legislation can't do that. Protests can't do that. The world is a broken place. It has always been broken. It will always be broken until it is broken apart and remade by the Lord. It sounds kind of doomsday-ish because it is kind of doomsday-ish. I get that. The world doesn't get better, but hasn't gotten that much worse either. So we have to avoid acting out of extremism. We're not a unique part of history. This is a very, very, very old problem. It's not novel. We should treat it accordingly. Now, with that being said, number two, we should still acknowledge that all forms of social injustice are evil. So just because we've always lived with it doesn't mean that we should become comfortable with it either. Roman slavery was different than chattel slavery. It was still wrong, and it was still evil. A system wherein a person has to voluntarily enslave themselves in order just to stay alive is evil. It is wrong. There are types of injustices today that take advantage of and devalue human beings, and those systems are evil. We should never back down from acknowledging that. As Christians, hear me, we should never back down from acknowledging that. These are not social issues. This is not a woke issue. That don't let that terminology steal your opportunity as a believer to shine the, the light of Christ into social injustice. Christians have historically been on the forefront of addressing these problems. 
in chattel slavery, in our country's early years, it was Christians, it was guys like John Newton, ministers who were fighting against this on the, on the, the very edge of this problem. It's not just a social issue, it's not a woke issue, it's a theological issue. It's a, what we would call an anthropological issue. It's a part of anthropology, our, our, our view of man. It, it is a theological issue because it's a rejection of the image of God that is in every single human being. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, man and woman are created in God's image. The imago Dei is how we refer to that. And everyone who has ever lived on the earth has the image of God within them. That doesn't mean that they're children of God. That doesn't mean that we all go to heaven. It's not universalism. It means, though, that every human being uniquely carries God's image within them. And so to attack a human, then, is an affront to God himself. Genesis chapter 9 that's what we, we, we essentially get the first commandment of the death penalty, that if you take the life of another man, your life shall be taken. That's how much God values human life. Why? He tells us, because in his image, God made him. The image of God is the issue. So whenever we wage war against a human being in any kind of capacity that is unjust or evil, it becomes a theological problem based on the fact that that individual bears the image of God within them. Now, how do we acknowledge these forms of evil? Third, we use the voice we have when we can. So I mentioned a moment ago, one of the primary differences between us and Paul is that we live in a democratic republic. Paul lived within an empire. We have a right to vote for who represents us. Paul did not. We have a voice. Paul did not. We have a choice. Paul did not. In part, Paul did not address social injustice all that much because he lacked the, the voice to really affect change. Now, I want to appeal to you, those of you who hold the view that Christians should just Stay out of all of the law and politics. Paul did have a voice, and when he did have the ability to use it, he used it. Acts chapter 22, Paul's preaching, as he normally does. Uh, Christ crucified. It makes some Jewish people angry. They go and stir up problems with the Roman guard. The Roman guard comes and arrests him, and they are about to interrogate Paul, which really is just a clever way of saying nearly beat him to death. And in Acts twenty-two twenty-five, it says, but when they stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? I, I, I just love the imagery of this. He's being pulled out, right, hands out and like this, back, bare, about to get whipped. And he's like, hey, uh, buddy, are you sure this is okay to do this to a Roman citizen? I mean, it's just kind of funny, right? It, it conjures a funny image. Now, in order to understand the significance of this passage, you have to understand a little bit about Roman law. In Rome, it was perfectly lawful to tie up and beat a Jewish person. You didn't really need a reason at all. You could just be having a bad day, and someone could look at you the wrong way. And if they were Jewish, you had every right as a centurion to tie them up and to beat them. No one would bat an eye. You could not do that to a Roman citizen. Strictly forbidden. So Paul is detained for preaching the gospel. He's Jewish. They tie him up. They're about to beat him. And he asks, you sure it's okay to do this to a Roman citizen? Now, this catches them by surprise, right? They're a little caught off guard by this because, again, Paul's Jewish. But if you keep reading in chapter 22, they begin to question him. They, they start this, the commander comes down, and the commander says, listen, I bought my citizenship, and it cost me a lot of money. You could purchase your citizenship, by the way, in Rome. It was a possibility. It just cost a lot of money. And so he's like, hey, I, I bought my citizenship. I know how much it costs. 
How could you afford it? And Paul says, I was born a citizen. They immediately untie him, and they begin to deliberate over what they're to do with him because they're not really sure at this point. How, how do we handle this guy? We can't just beat him like a normal Jewish person because he's a Roman citizen. It takes him about three chapters of deliberating. And, and, and Paul, you know, calling the kettle black, Paul is very long-winded, gets tired of the long-windedness. And in Acts 25, 11, he says the magic words, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. At that point, it's game over. Game, set, match. It was a citizen's right within Rome. If you muttered those words, I appeal to Caesar, you had the right to go before the Caesar himself. Now, uh, fair warning, it did not always work out well for you. Caesar didn't like to be bothered by the, you know, the common folk. But if you knew you were definitely more than likely about to die or at least getting beaten nearly close to death, it was a better prospect than that. And so he appeals to Caesar. You see, Paul used the voice he had when he could. He had a voice here. He used it. He just didn't have nearly as much of a voice as we have today. He didn't have a way of really engaging in social issues like we have. He didn't have a representative or, or public officials. There, there wasn't a way of really affecting change at a social level. But what he had, he used. So absolutely use your voice. Use your voice when you have it. That's, a, that's, that's guaranteed for you. If, if I were talking to Christians in perhaps uh, Africa or Saudi Arabia or some other place, uh, I, I might not be saying the same things. You may not have the same rights as we have, but we're not in those places. We're in America. So if you have a voice, use it. But with that being said, I want you to hear this very clearly. That is not how you win the culture war. You do not win the culture war by using your voice in a public sense. You fight it by, number four, prioritizing the gospel over everything else. This is how you do this. The gospel must always be the primary focus. What was Paul set apart as an apostle for? Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart to be a social revolutionary. Set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel was the priority. It must be our priority as well. Now, that begs a very important question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's a very important question that you need to be able to answer as a Christ follower. Sadly, if we were to survey 100 Christians today and ask them what is the gospel, we would likely get a lot of different answers, none of which are the actual answer. You would hear things like, well, it's just being nice to people. You know, it's, it's being a, a good Christian boy or girl. It's feeding the poor. You'd have some social elements, right? It's living out your faith. I love my favorite. You know, share the gospel, use words when necessary. I always like to rebut that with feed the poor, use food when necessary. <laughs> it's going to church every day. That's my, what you, you might hear. It's all about a relationship and not a religion. I mean, these are all fine things, right? But none of them correctly or adequately answer the question that explains what the gospel is. So let's take some time and let's understand what is the gospel? What is it? Three things that I want to tell you about the gospel that are important. You need to remember this. You need to take notes. You need to think about this deeply as a Christian. Number one, it is good news. 
It is good news. Simply put, the word for gospel in Greek, euangelion, it's a word that means good news, literally translated. Now, I always like to remind you whenever we talk about the gospel that good news is only good if it is addressing something that is bad, right? If, it, if it's not addressing something that's bad, then it's not good news. It's just average news, right? It's, it's intermediate news. If I were to come up to you and tell you, hey, good news, the repairs on your car, totally covered by insurance. That's only good news if you wrecked your car and you're trying to figure out how to pay for the, the, the repairs. If I just come up and tell that to a stranger, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, what happened to my car? <laughs> it's good news because it addresses something bad. Now, what is the bad news for us? Sin. Yes, sin. And who does sin affect? Everyone apart from Jesus. Everyone. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Every single one of us who has ever lived on the face of the planet apart from the Lord Jesus himself have had a sin issue to deal with since conception. And because of the sin that we deal with, this disease... This leads us to die, both physically and spiritually. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Sin pays you wages for its services. And that wage is you get to die now. It's a curse that has befallen every single human being apart from Jesus. So the gospel, the good news, addresses the bad news of sin, which is this condition that leads ultimately to our death. It is good news. It's the news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that pays the debt, that purchases the forgiveness of sins. This is news that God will take the worst things you've ever done, and he will exchange those things for all the best things that Jesus did. And the penalty that you are, are, are guilty of and waiting for in eternity, Jesus is going to take that penalty, and in exchange, he's going to give you perfect righteousness and fellowship with God the Father. Amen. This is the worst deal on the planet for God. It's the best deal on the planet for you. God lays everything down through the Son Jesus to take upon himself that which is rightfully yours. And he says, here, let me give you mine. Go be with the Father. I'll be there soon. This is the gospel. It is good news. It's news that we need to hear. It's news that we need to be reminded of. It's news that sets sinners free. Secondly, it's God's power. It's God's power. Romans 1.16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. There is power in the gospel. I love the word power in the Greek. It's the word dunamis. It's a word from which we get our English word dynamite. The gospel is like a stick of dynamite. You don't have to do much. You light it, you throw it into a room, and it changes its surroundings. This is how powerful the gospel is. It's sufficient in and of itself to do its job. We don't, have to, we don't have to add bells and whistles to it. We allow the Spirit of God to work through the power of God, which is the gospel. It is the gospel. I love, uh, who was it? I think it was Spurgeon that talked about how, he said, you know, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. You just set the lion free, and he can defend itself. It's powerful. It's God's power. Third, it's God's promise. It is a promise to us, those who hear this news and are, and are affected by this power. There's a promise 
embedded into it as well. What is the promise? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might be saved, not will be saved until you mess up and you got to do it all over again. It is you will be saved. Listen to me, the gospel is not complicated. It's actually pretty simple. Theology can be complicated. The attributes of God, of an infinite God, who's omniscient and omnipresent, all, that can be complicated. The person and work of Jesus Christ, Christology, that, that's, a, that's a complicated issue to address theologically. The tension between having faith and God's elect, very complicated issues theologically. The gospel is simple. It's just simple. It's the good news that we are not left alone, praise God, to deal with our sin, because if we were, we would fail at dealing with it, and we would all end up in hell. It is God's power to change a stubborn, sinful human heart. It can. It can actually change a heart. The law can't do that. Only the gospel can do that. Have you ever known someone that was in love with someone that you didn't think was a good fit, and you were like, hey, you need to stop loving them? How, how successful were you in that fair? Yeah, the heart is incredibly stubborn. It's super, super difficult to deal with but not for the gospel. The gospel of God can change a stubborn heart because it's God's power for salvation. And it is God's promise that whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the gospel. That is our mission here at City on a Hill, to make the gospel known. That is our purpose. That is our focus. That is how you change the world. It's not through law. It's not through activism. It's not through politics. Those are fine things. Nothing wrong with them. Use the voice you have when you can. You don't need to be apologetic about it. But understand, none of those things change the human heart. None of them ultimately address the underlying problem, which is sin, because only the gospel can do that. We must always be prioritizing the gospel over everything. This is why I believe Paul in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, why he instructs slaves to live out their faith rather than attacking the institution of slavery. Because the gospel is the only weapon that can undo injustice. He speaks the same issue in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. It's a parallel passage to Titus 2. If you read Titus and Timothy together, they, Paul says a lot more to Timothy than he does Titus but they're talking about a lot of the same issues. And he speaks to this issue of slavery in chapter 6, verse 1. Look what he says. He says, Let all who are under the yoke as a slave regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. That's a, that's a bold thing to say to a slave. Why? So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. What's at stake if we don't live this thing out even when we face injustice? The name of God and our doctrine will be spoken against. For Paul, focus on the conduct of the individual Christian was the, the chief thing that he always came back to because even if you are facing injustice, you have the ability to live above reproach in the face of something evil, and that brings glory to God and his great gospel. It's an opportunity to display the power of God's gospel. There's a lot of injustice in the world. I understand that. And it breaks the heart of God. You need to know that. This is not how God envisioned the world. This is not how he envisioned it when he created everything in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. When he said, behold, things are very good, it didn't entail the things that we experience today in our world around us. There's a lot of injustice. It's a major aspect of the culture war that we face. So we got to know how to deal with this the right way. We have to recognize that what is happening is not new. 
Social evil has always been around since Genesis chapter 3. We have to recognize that to prevent ourselves from walking into extremism. But with that said, we have to acknowledge that all of it is evil. And we call it what it is. And we use the voice that we have when we have it, when we can. There's nothing wrong with that. Paul did it. We should too. But ultimately, above all things, you prioritize the gospel over everything. You prioritize it over everything. It's the only thing that can make an impact in the world. It's the only thing that sufficiently addresses the underlying root issue of sin. It's the only thing that can transform a stubborn, hard human heart. I remember uh, years ago now, I got really sick with strep throat. I've always been kind of prone to strep throat. I don't get it as much anymore, uh, but, but when I do, I go hard in the paint, right? I, I, I redefine new levels of strep in my throat, and I got super, super sick at this point. I had a really, really high fever, and it hurt so bad, like, I couldn't even swallow without tearing up. Like, it was just really, really rough. And so I went to the doctor again, and, and she prescribed me lidocaine rinse. Lidocaine rinse. If you never use it, it's, it's this glorious stuff. It numbs kind of everything it touches. And so I would, you know, swish it around, gargle it in the back of my throat, and, and it, was, it made the pain at least manageable. It still hurt, but it, it was at least manageable. It was great. And I was thinking about this, that how insulting would it be if, if I came to my medical provider with strep throat and I was like, hey, I, I think I got strep, and, and she takes the test. Yeah, you're strep positive. Does it hurt? Yeah, it hurts really bad. Like, I can't even hardly st- swallow. And she was like, okay, well, I got you some lidocaine rinse. You're good to go. And I would be like, well, that's great, but, I mean, is that going to get rid of the strep? No, 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 but it'll make it easier to swallow. Well, but what about, a, what about an antibiotic? No, no, just take a lidocaine rinse. You'll be fine. I, I would be puzzled by that. I would be a little insulted, right? Because you don't get rid of strep throat with lidocaine rinse. You manage the symptoms with lidocaine rinse. You get rid of strep throat with amoxicillin or some other kind of antibiotic. And I got thinking about that this week, that when we as Christians prioritize social injustice over the gospel, it's like, it's like prescribing lidocaine rinse when we're dealing with strep. And what is needed is an antibiotic to get to the root issue. The gospel treats the underlying issue. It, treat, it doesn't treat the symptoms. It treats the issue, the sickness. It brings healing to the sickness. Now, should you use your voice? Should you have access to lidocaine rinse if you do and use it? Absolutely. But understand, you're only treating the symptoms, not the root problem. Only the antibiotic, the gospel, does that. And if I'm sick and I'm given a choice... You know, Morpheus from the Matrix, red pill, blue pill, lidocaine, or amoxicillin? Give me the antibiotic 10 out of 10 times. Because if it means suffering a little bit, but seeing the ultimate problem undone, I'm there. I'm there every day of the week. If it's between fighting social issues and sharing the gospel, give me the gospel 10 out of 10 times. It is good news for a weary world. It is God's power that can change the hardest of human hearts. It is God's promise of forgiveness for the worst things that you have ever done. The worst thing that you've ever done, the the deepest, darkest secret that you have that you would never tell anyone that you're the most ashamed of. Think about that right now and then consider what Scripture says that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Not when you were figuring it out, not when you were turning over a new leaf. None of that works. None of that's true. It's garbage. It's a lie. The only leaf you'll turn over will have the same amount of muck on the backside as it did the front side. You need a new leaf. And Christ can give you that, a new life. And it only comes through the gospel. Next time 
you begin to weigh in on a social issue in this culture war, I want you to ask this question. What about the gospel? Where does that fit here? What about the gospel? That'll change the way that you view people and the problems that exist within this world. Let's pray. Father, how we exalt you that you have called us out of darkness and into light. Not simply by doing more or doing better, but by hearing the good news, experiencing the power and believing the promise of your gospel. We're grateful, Lord. We're grateful that you see us in the state that we're in and that even at our worst, you're willing to lay your life down for us that we might have newness of life in Christ and a right relationship with God and with other people. Lord, I know that there are so many issues in the world today that are troubling to so many people in this room. And I pray that the ministry of your spirit would bring comfort and peace to them. I understand that, that worry is a very real and near problem to many of our hearts. It's hard not to. But God, would you remind us that this is not new, that it is evil, and that it will one day be undone by you when you come again, and that in the meantime, would you give us the boldness and the strength to face those things that may even be causing pain in our own lives and to live above reproach in such a way that we are not seen, but your son Jesus is seen. And that that might be a powerful example to the world, a witness to other dying people who have not been forgiven to eventually hear the news of Jesus and stand redeemed alongside of us. I thank you for men like John Newton who radically repented of evil that they had waged in their own lives and, and, and demonstrated their faith not just through words but through actual action. What a powerful, powerful example that is. Truly a man who understood how amazing grace really is. Help us be in repentance every day of those things that are not, are not pleasing to you, that are sinful, that we too might become a witness to those around us in our repentance of the power of your saving grace. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for this letter. It challenges us. Help us always ask that question, what about the gospel? We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Be good, all of you. I know you won't be, but I got to say it anyway. God bless you.